This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Being from chapter 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, come. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. O rock, our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to be seated. Have you ever seen someone in a place that you didn't expect them and it confused you? Uh, like it had you second guessing. I think that's who that is, but I'm, I'm probably wrong because surely they're not there, right? I recently had someone say that to me. They said, uh, I didn't recognize you. Uh, we've met before. I didn't recognize you because you were wearing a hat and we were in a different context. Uh, I get that. I, and I, I like hats, so I was okay with this excuse. Uh, but, but has that ever happened to you where, where you saw someone, especially someone who is famous, someone that maybe you are used to seeing on TV or a pro uh, athlete, you see them a place and you're like, there's no way that that could be them. Charles Barkley, 6'5", 250 plus. He was a big, big man, right? He was... In the airport I was in, and my buddy spots him. He says, that's Charles Barkley. I say, that's no chance. That's him. He says, uh, that's, that's Charles. I know that's Charles Barkley. There's no reason that Charles Barkley would be in this airport. It's him. I'm going to go talk to him. <laughs> okay, bad. Uh, prove, let's, let's go prove you wrong. Let's go talk to Charles Barkley, right? So we start walking up to him, also wearing a hat. The man likes a hat. He, he thinks that a hat's going to cover up who he actually is. Hat in a jumpsuit. Uh, my buddy walks up to him. Towering over him is it's Chuck. It's Charles Barkley. Uh, now, we're at DFW at the time, and it's a huge and busy airport, so it makes perfect sense for him to be there at that time. But in our imagination, at least in my imagination and my expectation of things, it made no sense for Charles Barkley to be there, right? So we hold things, people, events in certain contexts that make sense to us, right? It's how we're wired. For me, Charles only belonged on a basketball court or on the television that I'm watching back in the day. That was the only context he made sense in, right? And so when I saw him in a different place, I was confused. By the way, for those who only know him as a commentator and a funny golfer, um, he's a Hall of Fame basketball player. You just want to put that in your back pocket for trivia night, <laughs> if you were curious who he was. Now, on the flip side of this, though, 
When you recognize people in their locations and contexts, uh, things can come together, right? Uh, things make perfect sense when they belong together. That's how our brains are wired. They tie events and things and locations and places together. And so when you go to certain places, you recognize them and you have certain expectations you bring to them, right? So when you walk into a church, there are certain expectations tied to that. When you walk into a school, you're prepared for certain things. When you walk into Moe's, you expect them to say, welcome to Moe's. When you walk into stadiums, they hold certain expectations, right? uh, Your imagination, it gets caught up in this thing, right? For example, it's not hard to imagine. You'll hear the sounds of Rocky Top in Nayland next week, say if that was your team. Locations... (laughs) Locations and contexts, they often carry expectations for us, don't they? This is no different for the disciples this morning. In the gospel reading, there was a specific location and context they were going to. They were going into Caesarea Philippi, this region. And this morning, Caesarea Philippi is the first part of our verse. Where were the disciples going? Caesarea Philippi, it was the northernmost part of Jesus' ministry, right? It was the top of Israel at the time. Now, I invite you, please lean in because we are about to go somewhere. Caesarea Philippi, it got its name from King Herod. His his oldest son, his his son, uh, his name was Philip, right? Now, Philip uh, named it after Caesar, He added a temple in Caesar's honor. That's just normal for the imperial cult. This is what he did. And he named this area Caesarea Philippi. The town, it's set on the foothills of Mount Hermon in the top region of Galilee. It was made popular by this cliff. It was well adorned with this beautiful spring and a cave. Caesarea Philippi had a notorious past, specifically for pagan worship. Before Philip renamed this area, it was called Paneus, named after the Greek god Pan. And according to the Greeks, he was the god of nature. This part of the region, it was lush, it was beautiful. And so pagan worship of Pan made perfect sense there, right? For the Greeks, uh, Pan had his, his hiding place, was in this cave in the rock face, uh, Caesarea Philippi, this very popular rock face. Now, before uh, the Greeks found it, uh, the Canaanites and the Syrians, uh, they worshipped Baal there. Why? Fertility and life. Again, this region was lush and beautiful, specifically this part of the region, because it was home of this huge, natural, life-giving spring. Now, the spring flowed from the side of the rock face, specifically from the side of the rock face where there was a cave. And this spring, this huge spring, actually fed one of the main tributaries. It was one of the main tributaries to the Jordan River at this time. This cave and this spring, by the way, were eerily deep and dark to the point that it was considered endless and bottomless, which all the more made these groups marvel, right? And according to the myths pulled from this area, This cave, yes, this same cave was the home of Pan. This same cave with its endless depths was also one of the ancient gateways to the underworld. The Greeks called this place Hades, by the way. This is the backdrop. This is where the conversation 
takes place. You with me? And in the land of fertility, God's where Baal was worshipped, a place where Pan is worshipped, a place where the imperial cult of Caesar Augustus is worshipped, a place that is the gods where the gods of the world dwelt. At this location, at the gate of Hades, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples. I'd argue in this moment, this was the perfect backdrop for this very conversation. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks the question. He starts here. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? Now, to clarify, the title which Jesus uses here, it's one of his favorite titles that he gives himself, the Son of Man. Uh, It points back to the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel had a vision of God-man who would sit beside God on the throne, a Trinitarian view, right? And it was a title that Jesus took up. This title was a big title, claiming Messiahship, the one, the sent one, the one who was going to sit at the right hand of the Father, right, who was going to bring the kingdom of God and the rule of God to earth, the one who was going to set things right. You with me? So he asks in this place of all places, who do people say he, the Son of Man, is? Where do their imaginations go? Where do their expectations go? What is going on with his disciples? Here's their answer. Some say John the Baptist. Now remember a couple of weeks ago from Matthew 15, there was a rumor going on around Jesus that he was John the Baptist resurrected, right? Or some say Elijah, who was taken up in 2 Kings and was promised to come back in Malachi. Or or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. The people knew Jesus was a big deal, right? They knew they needed to honor him. He was special. So they thought him one of the heroes of Israel. This isn't too different today. People know Jesus is a big deal. Some want to give him credit for being a good teacher, a good moral person. Some even a hero to imitate, right? The people still know Jesus is a big deal. The people say, it's a vague term here, right? (laughs) Who are the people? It's talking about the crowds. It's talking about the whispers, the common person. Though this feels pretty vague, right? It feels like that vague we. You guys know what I'm talking about? That we that we sometimes use with our family and our friends, right? We need to do the dishes. We need to mow the lawn. We need to go on this area and we should pay this bill. We think you should do this. Who's the we, by the way? This is where my grandfather would ask, you got a mouse in your pocket? (laughs) Who's the we? This is the we that gets me in trouble with my wife, right? The we, there's no ownership. There's no responsibility in crowdsourcing, right? And we all know that group think goes well all the time. So Jesus asked the question, who do the people say that I am? Then in this lush and beautiful place, Jesus moves away from the opinions of the people and the rumors. And he asks his disciples who know him best, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? In Matthew's gospel, uh, before this interaction occurs, it's already uh, been something his disciples were aware of. They've, They've been watching Jesus for a long time. They have witnessed countless miracles, healings. They have watched him teach. They've watched him feed thousands. They've literally watched the kingdom of God come in power. 
They watch the king do his thing, right? That's the announcement from Matthew. The kingdom of God is at hand. They watched it. They had a front row seat. It's the answer that they gave John the Baptist a couple of chapters earlier, right? And this answer was messianic. It was from Isaiah. Jesus said, the blind receive the sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The good news is preached to the poor. The king and the kingdom of God are here. And, and there's more. Still in Matthew's narrative, this is also after the disciples themselves have been sent out two by two. Chapter 10, they're healing the sick. They're casting out demons. They are preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. They have experienced the kingdom of God on the move. And they knew the king personally. And here, in this place, Jesus is asking his disciples a very specific question. And this question functions as a turning point in his ministry. The question changes things. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Simon Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build the church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Did you catch that? In this place, Jesus surrounding, standing on a road that is littered by the temples of Syrian gods, a place where the Greek gods loomed, a place where the most important river in Judaism sprang to life, a place that was adorned with white marble splendor, the home of Caesar worship. It dominated the landscape, and it's in this place that Simon Peter confesses him to be the Christ, the Messiah. The king that we've all been waiting for. Pitted against the world's gods, Jesus is the Lord. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon. This was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. This was a supernatural revelation that Simon had eyes to see. It goes on, Jesus renamed Simon Peter. You see this wordplay going on here. Petra is the Greek word for rock, naming Peter Petras, right? Peter the rock, as they look over the rock face into the cave of Pan, in the face of the idols and the gods of the world, Simon Peter declares, Jesus is the Christ. Strength, surety, truth ringing in his words, Christ, the real rock, the real cornerstone, the one we've all been waiting for, the one history has been waiting for. What history is built on, Jesus. Jesus declares Simon is blessed. On this rock, I will build my church. This declaration, this reality, uh, that Jesus is indeed Lord, and even the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I imagine Jesus pointing toward that cave there, saying, but don't you know even your deepest fears your deepest worries, everything that the world says and the world wants to throw at you, even the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And it's on this truth. It's under the name of Jesus that everything changes. You see Paul breaking out into him and the Philippians here singing about this reality that God gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the king we've been waiting for. 
It's by and through Jesus that everything changes. This is the picture Matthew is painting uh, to capture our imaginations that this is what God has set out to do in Christ Jesus. He came to bring the kingdom. He came to set the captives free. He came to show the gods of the world impotent to the glory of God the Father. The king has come. What follows next is the turning point in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Verse 21, it talks about this, which we will potentially jump into next week. It's the shift from Matthew's gospel, where it's Jesus' public preaching uh, into his instructions to his disciples. They have just named him the king, right? So they declared him the Christ. The narrative turns, and they got everything perfect after that, right? (laughs) They didn't screw up at all, right? They weren't in one page called Satan, right? They didn't desert him. They didn't deny him. They didn't cower in fear. They didn't run. They recognized him as the king in the kingdom of God, that it was here, but they screw up over and over and over again. I mean, have you read some of the New Testament? These early followers, they were messy. Following Christ in this world can be messy. Wrestling against the flesh and the world, messy. But Christ said that he would build his church. Here, in spite of his friends' failings and ours, Christ will build his church. It's his mission, his bride, his power, his forgiveness. It's his. You might be saying, I'm not worthy. You're right. You might be saying, I'm going to fail. You will. Me too. Why would he want me? Because that is who he is. And Christ in his grace, he calls them, he calls us. Christ in his grace, he teaches them. He forms them, he restores them and us. Christ in his life, his death and his resurrection, he changes them and us. Only Christ could and only Christ can. We stand in the land of the gods. They might not be Pan or Baal or Augustus Caesar, but they might be Mammon and Aphrodite. Money, our appetites, sex, power, our search for significance and independence, this is where the Western secular world worships. We see this every day. It doesn't take long to walk through those doors and see this every day. It's here where Jesus asks us this question. It's very direct. Who do you say that I am. This isn't, by the way, the moment to fall back on niceties and convenience. Sunday school answers and platitudes. Jesus, in talking to his disciples, in this pantheon of the world, in this conversation that requires a response, he asks them a very specific question, and their response carries with it a trajectory. Who do you say that I am? C.S. Lewis famously argued that Jesus was either a lunatic, a liar, or he was Lord. According to Lewis, a man who was merely a man and said the things that Jesus said would not have been a great moral teacher. You're not allowed to say that. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg or else the devil of hell himself. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. 
Jesus doesn't mince words when he asks us, who do you say that I am? Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He said, I am the bread of life. Anyone who is hungry and thirsty must come to me. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus said some big things. Earlier in Matthew, he said, if you receive me, you receive the Father, God who sent me. In John 14, anyone who has seen the Father or has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Jesus said some big words. So who do you say Jesus is? Can you take him at his word? If we echo Peter's words, then those words carry a weight. And they change everything. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Those beautiful, bold, and big words. They took his disciples through the cross and resurrection, and many of them found their own crosses themselves. It changed everything for them. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because our response with it carries instructions and implications. If Jesus is the king and the kingdom of God is here and at hand, then what Matthew 13 says is true. This is like a treasure that's found in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Then in his joy, he sold everything he had and he bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found that one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and bought it. It's the ultimate treasure that we've been looking for. It's that thing of infinite value that we cannot live without. We're pushing all our chips in and saying, uh, just like Peter, Lord, where else would I go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Nothing this world says has anything to offer me. Nothing I desire is better than you. Nothing compares. Who do you say Jesus is? For some here, maybe this is a question you haven't wrestled with. I'd argue this is one of the most important questions you could have. For others, we need to be reminded that Christ is the ultimate goal, He's the ultimate treasure. And that Christ is building his church in the face of the world's empty promises and those subtle altars that are always calling us, always beckoning us, come worship at my world. Jesus says that he is the treasure that we seek daily, hourly, minute by minute. And this changes everything. This changes us. This changes the world to look more like heaven. May it be. Who do you say Jesus is? Lord, make this earth as it is in heaven. Open our ears that we might see you. Let's pray. Lord, give us the eyes to see you rightly. And may it break us seeing you as God, King, Savior, Redeemer, the one who forgives, the one who loves, 
the one who gave himself away so that we might be made whole again. Give us the eyes to see you and our hearts to love you. Encourage our souls this morning, God, that your kingdom is on the move, that you are at work, that you are building your church, your bride, and that the gates of Hades have no power here. Thank you, Lord. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.